is 104.5 The Zone. WGFX FM, Gallatin, Nashville. From the Mark Spain Real Estate Studios. Accumulus Station. Now, 104.5 The Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 104.5TheZone.com. This is The Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. Presented by Renters Warehouse. And here we go. Straight up, 6 o'clock by my watch means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm certainly glad to have you with me and glad to have you with us here at 104.5 The Zone all day long. Hope you and yours are doing exceedingly well. You know, I have not said this off the top of the show recently, but I need to. I'm blessed beyond measure, all reasonable and otherwise. Hope you recognize that you are as well. Hope you can still see that. Even if some of your conveniences have been taken away, there's still a whole lot that we have that we can focus on. And I need to do a better job of focusing on what I have instead of dwelling on what I don't, which right now includes a Nintendo Switch and Animal Crossing. I sold my Switch a few months ago, and I've been lamenting it ever since. And now I want the thing back desperately. But i got to put that out of my mind. Many more important things going on in the world. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Technically, I really haven't been there much. But I can tell you, I did write on Better Call Saul on Monday night. And I'm going to have a whole lot of Ozark content for you this weekend. I've already written two pieces that we'll publish on Friday once the season hits, covering the first four episodes. And I'll, before this evening is out, I will have watched the next two and written the third piece. So all of that's going to be there for you to just kind of consume as you watch the season once it drops on Netflix Friday. And I imagine the numbers are going to be astronomical for people watching it because, one, it's been a pretty long delay, and, two, what else are you going to watch? But I want to do something tonight that sometimes I don't, but I want to start it out with something positive. And that is that this country is great. America is great because we're a giving nation. We're a giving republic. And we've seen this right here in our own community in the wake of the tornadoes and how everyone has come together to rebuild all these all people's private money and all these companies donating and just everybody's tried to find a way to pitch in, whether it's cutting down trees or opening their bank accounts. This happens every time there's a crisis in our country. You've got businesses trying to stay open right now during this pandemic, but are still donating. And there's charity concerts being run by large companies and things like this. We are an altruistic nation. Yeah, there's, there's some bad apples out there. And at times we're all bad apples. But I've often gone back to the commentary that there's still more of us than there are of them. There's still more good people out there who they want to help and they don't have to be forced to help. And even if those that choose not to don't, that's part of freedom. You might not love it, but that's just kind of the way things are. We are able to make choices. We're able to make decisions without a gun being put to our head to make them. We freely give rather than it being taken from us. So I'm reading an article this afternoon on ESPN's sister site, The Undefeated. And it's entitled, The Absurdity of Athletes Taking on the Burden of Billionaires. And Martinzi Johnson, this is the first thing I've read by him, and He may have a lot of things that maybe I want to read, but this is certainly not one of them. This raised my ire, quite frankly, because 
it's a shaming mechanism and it's almost like people should be forced to give up their wealth. And that's not how America works. It's not how it should work. So he writes, In 2011, hedge fund manager Josh Harris led a group of 16 investors that purchased the Philadelphia 76ers from Comcast Spectator for $280 million, pledging to turn the lifeless team into a world-class franchise. Four years later, Harris, whose net worth is listed at $3.8 billion by Forbes magazine, purchased an 18% stake in English Premier League club Crystal Palace for a banal $75 million investment alongside a partner. In 2017, Harris bought a house on the Upper East Side of Manhattan for $45 million. According to NBC Sports Philadelphia, the annual taxes on the 21,000-square-foot townhouse with more than a dozen marble fireplaces was listed at more than $340,000 at the time of purchase. Yet on Monday, the New York Times reported that the Sixers' ownership group was requiring at-will employees making at least 50000 a year to take up to a temporary salary reduction of 20% due to the work stoppage caused by the coronavirus pandemic. As the rest of the country weathers a hurricane of inadequate health care, mass layoffs, and food shortages at grocery stores, a corporation worth an estimated $2 billion considered docking the pay of some of its lowest-paid employees to soften the blow of projected financial losses. That is, until Joel Embiid stepped in. And this goes back to the story of Embiid. He's the latest, I think. But originally, the stories were about Giannis and Zion Williamson giving like $100,000 of their own money to try and cover some of the arena employees during the time that they were going to be off. And if you heard how I read that, you can tell the tone of this piece is basically how dare this guy with all this money not give it to people. He writes, as public shaming tends to do, the Sixers immediately saved face. Within four hours of Embiid's pledge, Harris announced that the team would not be requiring salary reductions. After listening to our staff and players, it's clear that was the wrong decision. We have reversed it and will be paying these employees their full salaries. To our staff and fans, I apologize for getting this wrong. One, good apology. Two, the optics here were bad and he had to fix them. And three, yeah, this was the right decision. The one that ultimately was made, I do think, was the right decision for them to make. So far, so good, even though he's pointing at this person and trying to tell him what to do with his money. But then he says, Embiid's generosity once again exposed the modern absurdity of players taking up the mantle of employers with the NBA on pause for the next month or more. Kevin Love was another one that offered 100000 So he's talked about here. Blake Griffin was one I forgot as well. Giannis and Zion, they'd all pledged to donate funds to their respective teams, arena workers, and he calls that commendable. And he's right. Martenzi Johnson is absolutely right about this. It's totally commendable. It backs up my assertion that America's a wonderful place. We all know this because of what we get to live in. And some of the freedoms that we have that other cultures would do anything to have at this point in time. But here you go. It is no doubt commendable for Embiid and others to reach into their own coffers to support the hundreds of workers who support them and their teammates. But in an ecosystem where billionaire team governors exist, the burden should not be theirs. Uh, Why not? They actually ended up, or Embiid in this case, helped force or help kind of lead to a better decision by somebody that had the income to make that decision. But whoever decides to give should have to give freely or should give freely. 
you should not be giving with your hands tied behind your back like you don't want to. We were born to serve. We were born to give, not to take and not to receive. But there are those that don't give all that much. That's part of the freedom of living here. Martenzi goes on. Cavaliers Governor Dan Gilbert, also the owner of one of the largest retail mortgage lenders, has a net worth of more than $6 billion, according to Forbes. Pistons Governor Tom Gores is worth $5.7 billion. Pelicans Gail Benson, who also owns an NFL team, is worth $3.2 billion. Milwaukee Bucks co-governors Wes Edens and Mark Lazary are worth more than $4 billion combined. Quote, yet with all that wealth, it took players to start giving away money for some governors to start announcing plans? Since Love's announcement... Governors of NBA teams and many in the MLB and and NFL have either agreed to pay hourly workers during the work stoppage or announced intentions to. That's an awesome thing. That is people leading corporations to see and learn from their example. And, yes, sometimes learn from their mistakes, learn from their oversights, maybe see their self-absorption and their selfishness and make changes. Not because they're forced to, but because they see the benefits otherwise. And then we get to this. In a country where the richest 1% owns 40% of the nation's wealth, it is not the responsibility of the proletariat to take care of itself. Wow. First off, proletariat is a very effective and very interesting word to use here and very applicable also. Then he writes, when the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris went up in flames back in April 2019, billionaires across the globe rushed to pledge more than $1 billion to rebuilding efforts. But actually, it was small donors from America and France who helped finance the project after mostly all the billionaires reneged. On Twitter, non-rich people are starting fundraisers for authors missing book tours, hourly workers missing shifts, Renters missing monthly rent payments and parents unable to afford childcare for their newly knighted work from home due to the coronavirus. When one check from Amazon owner Jeff Bezos could wipe out a ton of virus related debt. So you get the point here, right? If you're rich, you should give it away. And I'm going to tell you who you should give it to and when you should give it to them. What we should be doing is applauding Giannis Antetokounmpo and Zion Williamson and Blake Griffin, and Joel Embiid, who, by the way, are millionaires. It's not like they're giving away 75% of their net worth here. They're making a ton of money as well. They're part of that 1% that Martenzi Johnson is speaking of. The problem here is the comment that Jeff Bezos could wipe out a ton of virus-related debt, and because he doesn't, he's some kind of a subhuman. And because the 76ers didn't make this decision before they saw Joel Embiid and decided to mimic his example, even if there was a little bit of public outcry like, why is Embiid doing this when you guys could do it? That's just part of the way this country works. We adapt. We see things and we change. And sometimes, yeah, there's circumspection and crises of conscience where we sit back and realize, man, you know, we could be doing this. We could help this. But Martenzi Johnson I think would more like for somebody, some entity, I mean, not some human, although I'm sure he would like to be a part of this entity, get in a room with all these rich people and tell them what to do with their money. And I don't like that. 
I don't think that's a positive in any way. He uses the term blasphemous. And he says it feels blasphemous to compare Embiid, a man who signed a $146 million contract extension in 2017, to good Samaritans on the Internet who likely can afford to miss one paycheck. It feels blasphemous, Martenzi, because it is blasphemous. There is no comparison there. They're both good Samaritans. They're both giving because they are free to give and they want to give because we are born to give. We are created to give. We are designed to give, to serve. We get so much more. We feel so much closer, I think, to our creator when we give and serve than when we take and when we receive. It is blasphemous to assume at all that Embiid and somebody that can't afford to miss a paycheck are comparable, except that they're both doing the same thing. They're giving what they can. Embiid could give $146 million to Martenzi. Are you saying that? No, you're saying the billionaires should do it so that Embiid can keep his $146 million. That's insane. Then he says, but Embiid's salary compared with those of team owners is comparable to the difference between a McDonald's cashier and the CEO of the company. Good Lord, man. Can we just applaud who is giving as opposed to pointing fingers at who's not? What gives Martenzi Johnson or anybody else the authority to tell people what to do with their money? He says, NBA governors, this is how he ends his article, NBA governors shouldn't need their cashiers to take care of the other workers. America is a wonderful place. Here, the cashier of Joel Embiid, who's making $146 million a year, is helping out. And yeah, the ownership group saw that and decided to step up and do the exact same thing. But we don't need the Martensi Johnsons of the world shaming people that have money. Like it's somehow a problem that they've accumulated wealth. We hope that all of them are giving to causes they believe in and are helping out and are stepping up. And we know, and we're not naive enough to think that all of them don't do that. We know that a lot of them don't do that. We know that some do, and we hope that more do. But we live in a country in which the choice is theirs. And then our choice after that can be, well, do we want to consume that product or do we want to go with somebody else? whole lot of freedom here. Who are the arbiters? I can tell you who it's not. An ESPN writer trying to tell billionaires what to do with their money and somehow shaming them because a hundred plus millionaire had to give up money at the same time. The whole thing rings false to me. We'll be right back. It's a big six on 104.5 The Zone. Zone. Glad to have you with us. Hope your Wednesday's going as good as can be expected, given the current conditions, and that everybody you know and care for is safe, wherever you might be. This is The Big Six. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone, live from the palatial bunker in Brentwood. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse. They are dedicated to making renting your home easy, fast, and worry-free. Renters Warehouse, you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it. I'm just going to read this directly. The unprecedented and unpredictable spread of the outbreak has seen the situation in the rest of the world deteriorating. Yesterday, the Director General of the World Health Organization said that the COVID-19 pandemic is accelerating. There are more than 375,000 cases now recorded worldwide, 
and in nearly every country, and their number is growing by the hour. In the present circumstances and based on the information provided by the WHO today, the IOC president and the prime minister of Japan have concluded that the games of the 32nd Olympiad in Tokyo must be rescheduled to a date beyond 2020, but not later than summer 2021, to safeguard the health of the athletes, everybody involved in the Olympic Games, and the international community. The leaders agreed that the Olympic Games in Tokyo could stand as a beacon of hope to the world during these troubled times, and that the Olympic flame could become the light at the end of the tunnel in which the world finds itself at present. Therefore, it was agreed that the Olympic flame will stay in Japan. It was also agreed that the Games will keep the name Olympic and Paralympic Games Tokyo 2020. So, this is a decision everybody had to see coming. The Olympics, the IOC tried their best to find a way not to actually delay the Games, but it's very possible Sports aren't going to be resumed globally in anything resembling this by the end of the summer. And you've got a lot of training facilities and gyms and things that these athletes need to compete on a level playing field that aren't available at current. So the even playing field is even much more uneven than maybe it's ever been before. But I'm going to say something that might actually be a little unpopular here. And maybe I'm then going to be I'm going to go against my own statement before the end of this segment. I'm not sure. But I know the money that's going to be lost here. I and mean, we're talking billions. And NBC's Peacock service, their streaming service, was going to use as much of its early draw live and replay coverage of the Olympics. Remember the time delay and all those problems that we've had with everything being spoiled? Well, the Peacock was going to help with those concerns and it was going to be their draw. They don't have the Mandalorian, but they've got that and they're going to have the office, for example. But Peacock was set to launch in July and this was going to be a feature. The Olympics content was going to be a feature and certainly now it's not going to be. But here's what I think is unpopular that I'm going to say. In 2020, are we kind of post-Olympics? in terms of our interest level, and maybe this is very much within our borders. There are certainly, definitely, assuredly, countries across the globe that care deeply about international competition. But as Americans, is it fair for me to ask the question as to whether or not we do or not? Maybe I'm alone, or maybe I'm in the vast minority. But it's not that I don't pay at all any attention to the Olympics while they're going on. And there are certain events, certainly, that pique our interest. But how much do I really care? Do I care about who wins the Super Bowl or who wins the gold medal in about 95% of the sports? Do I care about who wins the NBA championship or the World Series or even the Stanley Cup or certainly the green jacket or the claret jug? Or all of these different things. Or who's the WWE champion? Or who's the WBC champion? All of these sports. Who's won the majors in tennis? Do I not care more about this than I do the Olympics? Like, I can see the Olympics actually mattering more this time around when it comes back. Because it can kind of be a sign of global unity 
in terms of being able to sort of rally together and rise above this pandemic. Now, right now, there are some countries on one side and some countries on the other. We're all fighting it, but it's a blame game and everything else. And there's misinformation across the board. But if you remember after 9-11, one of the unifying forces was watching George Bush throw that first pitch and watching baseball come back. I sometimes think sports has an outsized opinion of its own importance, but it does matter. And because of the fabric that it creates culturally, when it comes back, it is going to feel special. There's going to be a lot of American flags, and we're going to care more about them because we're going to think about what we've gone through and hopefully what we've been able to defeat and find a way that this isn't going to come back on us over and over again for a long period of time. But when you think about the Olympics just as an event, has it passed its expiration date? I do not sit down and make an appointment to watch the Olympics while it's on. I'll watch a little bit of Team USA basketball, but ask those guys – they like playing in the Olympics, but what really matters? Are you going to say, oh, they've won two gold medals? Is that going to be? I always wonder what's going to be the first thing you want written in your, you know, in the story of you on your Wikipedia page. Do you want to hear, like, what do you want first if you were famous? And I wouldn't say Olympics would be near the top of that list compared to NBA championships because the ultimate competition isn't international in a lot of our sports and the sports that we pay attention to and spend our hard-earned money on and spend our hard-earned entertainment eyeballs on because time is of the essence are team sports that the competition internationally just isn't there. We care who wins the World Series more than we care about, you know, international baseball. Sometimes they can do the World Baseball Classic and that does attract some attention, but how much? And because I've never been somebody that gravitates to the human interest stories that you get, you know, the long form pieces that are exceptionally well done about these athletes we've never heard of before. It's just not an event that to me appeals the way that it did back in, for example, 1984 in Los Angeles. That's the first one I can remember where I remember it being on at my grandparents' house and we were over there and it felt like the Olympics was the biggest thing in the world. And I'm sitting there with a sheet of notebook paper drawing the five rings. The Olympics mattered. Dan and Dave and the money that made for McDonald's before it turned out not to be all that great of a competition when it actually happened. Certainly, guys like Phelps and even Mark Spitz way back in the day and Katie Ledecky and Usain Bolt and Michael Johnson and Carl Lewis and the various scandals that we've seen. And certainly there have been, I mean, there have been big moments there. But how many recent big moments have affected you in a way where you talk about them at all? What do you talk about Olympic-wise in America? You either talk about Team USA losing. That's the only time international basketball matters to us anymore is when Team USA loses. Remember the FIBA when they lost to Australia? That's the only time we've even talked about international basketball in years because it was just sort of a foregone conclusion that they were going to show up and dominate. Now, that didn't always happen, but most of the time it did when they put their mind to it and cared. And that's the, that's the whole crux here. The major athletes in this country have to be forced to care or have to ride in on a white stallion to save us after something that's deemed humiliating, like actually losing or even being challenged at any point in international basketball play. But that, to me, 
is something the Olympics is probably always going to have to deal with from now on. Globally, okay. But the IOC is an organization that always tries to line its pockets with boondoggles of stadiums and all of this stuff being erected in all these places that can barely handle them. And the television rights and all those kinds of things, I, I don't think are going to go up. I think they're likely to go in the opposite direction. I mean, we're talking about a lot of money here being lost, not just by the television networks, but certainly by the IOC, who raises a lot of their income with this year. I think it was $1.4 or $1.2 billion I saw an awful announcing that they were able to get in terms of their revenue, it was something like 65% of their operating revenue is what they got in Rio. And it was going to be even higher this time around. So that's money that they're not going to have. But the IOC is one of those organizations that seems kind of faceless and monolithic that we just don't know a whole lot about. And I think they think that the Olympics matter a whole lot more than the Olympics actually matter. And again, this could be a myopic view, and it might be a view just from you know, my vantage point as an American. But here's the problem, or here's the reason I'm talking about this. You're Americans. You're listening to me right now. Tweet me at jmartzone, and at some point when I get back on Twitter, I will be able to kind of gauge this. But I would love to know whether or not you kind of feel the same way as me, that you care a lot more about the NBA season being gone or the possibility of the NFL draft being pushed back or off-seasons being affected in American sports a lot more than this. This might feel monumental just because, wow, the IOC is as greedy and self-absorbed as they've been for them to realize they have to shut this down when Canada said, we're not coming, and U.S. swimming and track came out and said, we really need you to, to back this thing up. And they finally listened to do it. Like maybe that means something because, wow, the Olympics got canceled. But does it mean anything to you as a sports fan that we're not going to have the Olympics this year? It being pushed back to next year. Only th Maybe that'll make me care more next year because it'll feel like it's been ages since the last Olympics. But I can't tell you five things that I remember from the last Olympics. It's not just because we have shorter attention spans. It's because things are much more entertaining and momentous outside of the Olympics in the sports world itself. Again, I could be on an island here. You know, I could be hanging out totally alone here with a volleyball that I've painted a face on, and none of you agree with me on this. But the Olympics, I talk about needle movers a lot on this show in terms of athletes and teams and things that grab our interest. The Olympics just ain't a needle mover for me in 2020. It was 20 years ago. It definitely was 30 years ago. But there are sports and there are things that you kind of grow past. And the Olympics, to me, is a lot closer to my space than it is TikTok. We'll be right back. This is The Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. So. Welcome back to the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. Jason Martin here on Twitter at jmartzone. This is episode, man, I just can't remember. I think it is episode five from the Brentwood Bunker, a.k.a. my home. You know, you think about how it could be a lot more inconvenient to live in this world than it is. I can still do my job. Hopefully everything going on in your world, wherever you happen to be, is good. So... 
one thing that a lot of people know about me is that there was a time when I worked in pro wrestling uh, for almost a decade, actually, in the Carolinas and Georgia, primarily. And Brandon Hagney and David Reed and I have hosted Squared Circle Radio now here on The Zone for about six years. And although I usually don't talk too much about pro wrestling here on this particular show, I will talk about it today. And not just because we need something to talk about, but because there's actually something intriguing here. Now, ESPN ran WrestleMania 30 on Sunday night. They're going to run a couple of more WrestleManias um, here in the next couple of weeks. And there's been discussion about Vince McMahon, who had said to investors a few months back that there was a big thing coming. And the expectation was maybe he was going to take his most lucrative events, his biggest pay-per-view events, the Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam and Survivor Series, maybe even Money in the Bank, take those and sell them to someone else, give the rights to someone else and let them distribute them that way. And then the WWE Network would have everything else. And ESPN Plus was, it seemed to be the leader in the clubhouse. And I know there have been discussions between those two parties in the past handful of months. Even with the XFL going on, this was a big deal. And many thought this would start with WrestleMania 36, which was going to take place in, down in Tampa on April the 5th, which is not this coming Sunday, but next Sunday. But instead of really talking about that, I want to talk about the fact that WrestleMania is still happening. Everybody is trying to determine how to keep their business afloat during this time. You've got restaurants offering free delivery you got restaurants that you like now partnering with other restaurants to offer desserts when they haven't been on their menu. There's a restaurant that I really like that me and my wife frequent that is now partnering with a cupcake shop in Germantown, hopefully to keep that business afloat. This one's a bit of a chain. It's one that you can find in a lot of places, but this cupcake shop is not. So maybe this is a good partnership and a way for the for the big guy to help out the little guy. But both of them are certainly in the thick of the trouble. A lot of people's jobs are in jeopardy. A lot of companies are in jeopardy. Most small businesses have about, what, 45 days, I think, is the number of just available capital before they have no more money. Like, most of them won't come back if this were to go for a long period of time because it just it will cost too much. But when you look at sporting, you've got the NBA trying to figure out if they can come back. You've got the NFL draft, which we talked about earlier on in the program, discussing amongst the general managers and Goodell and everybody else, maybe we need to push the draft back and the NFL trying their best not to do that, even though I think it's very possible it may still happen. UFC, Dana White was going to try to run all those fights until he just couldn't find a place anymore. And I discussed last week with you, I thought it made sense because a sport like that that doesn't have the same kind of audience that the NFL does, for example, if that's the only game in town, a lot of people are going to watch that that otherwise wouldn't. And maybe you're able to convert and hold on to some new fans and build your business. The old never let a crisis go to waste kind of deal. You have to think as a business person how you can make the best of an awful situation. And that's not ghoulish. It's just looking at it from a perspective of hopefully optimism or positivity. But WWE is running WrestleMania over two days now instead of one on Saturday, April 4th and Sunday, April the 5th. 
there will be no fans in attendance, and they will be done on multiple locations. There's going to be some some of these matches have gimmicks and stipulations that are going to put them elsewhere, like maybe a parking lot, or maybe in the woods, or maybe here, or maybe here, and then some are going to take place in their complex called the Performance Center uh, down in Florida, which is where they do a lot of taping and where they train future superstars. I actually visited it and wrote about it for SB Nation a handful of years ago. It's amazing you know, what they had to offer in those places. But WrestleMania taking place in front of no fans over two days, to me, is the height of stubbornness. Even if people are going to watch this, one of the biggest draws for WrestleMania in particular, because a lot of you listening that aren't pro wrestling fans still know what WrestleMania is, is the glitz. It's the pageantry. It's being in a giant stadium with 70,000 people in it, all screaming. It's these giant entrances and these long entrance ramps and these sets that take almost a week to put together and celebrities hosting and celebrities all over the place and interviews on the Today Show and interviews on Good Morning America and good, you know Access Hollywood and Entertainment Tonight. All of this because mass media and just general pop culture does pay attention to WrestleMania because WrestleMania generally gets more interest and has more clicks on search engines like Google and others than things like the World Series, just as one example. So it's a huge undertaking, and it's a huge success, and it sells itself. doesn't matter what's on the card. A lot of people will get WrestleMania and not get anything else all year because WrestleMania is the brand. It is the draw. But if you're doing it in front of no fans, pro wrestling loses a lot. All Elite Wrestling has actually proven you can do this right uh, you can watch tonight's show on TNT and see it. And if you've DVR'd any previous shows, you can see the last couple. This one last week that they did, they had some inventive ways to make it feel like people were there. They put wrestlers in the crowd, just a few, not in any kind of a way that was going to create a problem. And they went ahead and they ran their show. And they ran their angles and they told their stories. And it was a great two hours of television entertainment. WrestleMania is a wrestling-heavy show, usually highlighted by, in addition to all the outside stuff, long wrestling matches. Long matches, even good ones, even great ones, in front of no fans are awkward, they're weird, and it just doesn't seem to work. Like, you can do this for about 8 to 10 minutes, but if you try to go 30 in front of no fans, you can't do it. A lot of these matches rely on the length to feel important. This is a show that should not be happening. It's being taped in advance. It's being taped this week. As a matter of fact, they're taping everything through the Raw after WrestleMania, which is the Monday program. They're taping it all this week. And they're doing it over two days so that they can have a crew come in on one day and then a crew come in on the second day so that you don't have too many people in one place at one time. How about you just postpone the thing, Vince? How about you just do something else? People are going to understand, first of all. But let me tell you who I really do feel bad for here. It's those that have worked really hard to perform at a WrestleMania or to have a key spot on this huge deal. I mean, think about whatever discipline you're in, especially if you're in entertainment. This is going to be your big debut on Broadway, right? And then COVID-19 happens, but the person, the producer says the show must go on in front of no fans. So your giant Broadway debut takes place in front of nobody. But they have cameras so you can watch it at home. You lose so much of this. 
without those fans screaming and rising and falling that help to kind of control how the audience feels. Not to mention, WrestleMania is usually something you get together with a group of people and watch, kind of like the Super Bowl. Now you're watching empty arena matches with very few people in them, not a lot of noise, and you're watching them with a very select few, if anybody. You might be watching it isolated by yourself. You might be watching it with two or three people max, your family. Everything changes because of this. But those that have worked so hard to get there to have their moment, I would say probably the biggest example of that is Drew McIntyre, who was a guy who, when he came into the company, was deemed to be the chosen one. But he wasn't ready yet. He was young. They pushed him too fast. And then they lost all faith in him. He ended up having to leave. And he was a joke when he left. He was a comedy act, fodder for actual superstars. So he goes off on his own, and he recreates and rebuilds himself. And now he is ready. Now he's learned the tricks of the trade. He can talk. He can work in the ring very effectively. He's believable. He's got a great look. He's got great size. He's got absolutely everything. And then he fights his way back to the starter league for the WWE where he dominates. And the starter league at this point, it sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. It's one of the most prestigious places you can be in the world. And in, tr- in terms of quality, it's better than the main roster where he is now. But obviously, WWE is the name, and it's the one that matters. And it's the one that makes you the big bucks. So he's clawed all the way back from people losing faith in what they thought he was going to be to now being who they thought he was going to be. But he's going to perform in front of nobody against Brock Lesnar in this key match after winning the Royal Rumble in January and everything being pushed behind him to make him a super, super, superstar. There's no way that his win is going to have the same effect. So unlike playing you know, the first couple of rounds of the NBA playoffs, for example, in front of no fans, this is totally different in my opinion. This guy has worked for a decade just to find his way back and to get another look, to get another chance. He gets the opportunity. He's making the most of it. Something happens completely out of his control. And instead of just moving that show down the road the way almost everybody else has done with their super events, WWE is going to be stubborn and they're going to run WrestleMania over two days with 16 matches. And this is going to be lost. Because never are you going to think of a great WrestleMania triumph being Drew McIntyre, potentially, if that's what they're going to do, beating Brock Lesnar because he's going to be in front of no fans. We may never forget this WrestleMania, but it's not going to have gravity. It can't. It can't feel big when it's done small. All it's going to do is remind us of what it could be and what it's not because of the current situation. It leaves the wrong taste. It leaves the wrong mentality, the wrong thoughts in our minds. This is a mistake by WWE. This WrestleMania is simply not going to matter. I know a lot of you out there are rolling your eyes and don't care, but put yourself in the position of somebody that has trained and worked forever to get this moment, and it's not going to be a tenth of what it should have been. And then think about how you would feel in that spot. I'm telling you, huge mistake, and I'll be very curious to see what the reaction to this show actually is with all the limitations placed on it. We'll be right back. This is The Big Six on 104.5 The Zone.
Final segment of the program this evening. Ned Michaels coming up next. Stick with us here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin, live from the Brentwood Bunker, a.k.a. my home. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse. They are dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through Rent Estate, renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse, the Rent Estate Company. All right, final segment means it's time for another recommendation from the bunker. Something television, film, something you might have access to right now with streaming services that you can and should check out while you obviously can't do very much else outside of the home. Well, I've kind of stuck with Hulu the last few days, even though I did do the movies that made us and the Home Alone one in particular. Speaking of which, I watched the Ghostbusters episode with my wife last night. It was good. I thought the Home Alone one was better actually, but both of them very good, and we still got Die Hard and Dirty Dancing to watch. So TV Guide put out a list in 2013 of 60 shows that they deemed canceled too soon. Number five on that list is tonight's recommendation. It's actually something that I am re-watching currently, and I'm getting the joy of watching uh, my wife watch for the very first time. It's Joss Whedon's Firefly which ran in 2002 and 2003, there's only 14 episodes because Fox canceled it. Main reason is because they put it on Friday nights, which is the worst possible time slot in the world, and the ratings just weren't there. It barely made the top 100. So what looked like, hey, this is probably going to go for a while, ended up not, even with Joss Whedon's name attached to it and the success that he has had in other endeavors, most notably Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The Avengers. But Firefly is a show that's not going to take you very long to watch. Hulu's got the entire series. It's 14 episodes, but only 11 of the 14 actually aired. Fox canned it before they even got the last three. And then Serenity, the movie actually came out in on the big screen about one of the larger characters and finally kind of trying to put some kind of a bow on the show. But if you think about shows that were canceled too soon and ones that have kind of found a rebirth due to streaming or due to DVD releases. Two of the biggest examples might be Family Guy, even though not really for me, and the other big one is Arrested Development, which absolutely is. And it was another show that was ratings-challenged, another show on Fox, another show around the turn of the century, just like Firefly was, and... It ended up coming back on Netflix for a couple of seasons strictly because people bought the DVDs and among those people, me and my roommates, and we sat and watched them and we loved them and it just kind of took on a second life. Firefly has a very devoted fan base, hugely devoted. And instead of telling you everything about the series, I'll tell you it's basically a space western with a crew of folks and a, a cast of folks that some of whom have done a lot. Nathan Fillion, you know, from Castle and a ton of stuff. Gina Torres from Suits and Pearson. Alan Tudyk has done his share of smaller things. Morena Baccarin went on to do Homeland, among other things. Adam Baldwin did Chuck. Jewel State, actually, and Sean Marr didn't really do much that I can recall. Ron Glass actually did something before Firefly. One of my parents' favorite shows called Barney Miller and Summer Glau ended up playing Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicles on Fox and had a you know a funny episode with Howard Wolowitz on the Big Bang Theory. So there was a lot here, and there were some good guest stars that would pop up on this show as well. 
But here's the way I'm going to sell this to you. It's a great show, first of all. It's not going to take you very long to watch. It's family-friendly, even though there's a little bit of violence there. There's some interesting theology with Ron Glass's character, Shepard Book, who's basically a pastor. He's a chaplain. And it's basically, you know what, rather than me try to tell you, I'll just give you his backstory. The reruns of the episode begin with Shepard Book's character voicing this. After the Earth was used up, we found a new solar system and hundreds of new Earths were terraformed and colonized. The central planets formed the alliance and decided all the planets had to join under their rule. There was some disagreement on that point. After the war, many of the independents who had fought and lost drifted to the edges of the system far from alliance control. Out here, people struggle to get by with the most basic technologies. A ship would bring you work. A gun would help you keep it. A captain's goal was simple. Find a crew. Find a job. Keep flying. Fireflies in the name of the class of ship that our characters, the one that, ones that we pay attention to, led by Captain Mal Reynolds, who is Nathan Fillion's character, it's the way they maneuver around and try to earn money and try to survive and all that kind of stuff. And the actual Firefly's name is Serenity, which is the name of the movie that would end up uh, kind of tying a bow on this series at the end. Now let me tell you how I'm going to sell this to you based on the present. I was writing about a series last fall and last winter that I continually kept comparing most to Firefly. It's the series, I would say, is the closest thing I have seen to Firefly since Firefly. Now, I know watching Firefly, I'm reminded of Tombstone, I'm reminded of Deadwood, I'm reminded of Justified, I'm reminded of a lot of things, including Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and that kind of stuff. But the series that reminds me the absolute most of Firefly, and as I'm re-watching it, I'm discovering this even more than I thought originally, is The Mandalorian which was one of the biggest hits of last year, spawned Baby Yoda and the Child, and was basically a space western with a lot of the same tenets that made Firefly work, including some of the humor and the light mixed with the heavy. And that's what Jon Favreau did so beautifully with Disney Plus's killer app that they launched with, with The Mandalorian, which were 30-minute episodes. These are an hour, which means they're 44, 45 minutes or so, except for the pilot because it was extended. But if you liked The Mandalorian, and if you're especially if somebody that likes Buffy and stuff, and if you do, you probably already know about Firefly. But if you like Joss Whedon when he does stuff with an ensemble cast, like he did with The Avengers, mix that with Favreau and The Mandalorian – Mix that with just a little bit of, you know, Val Kilmer and Kurt Russell and Tombstone, and that gives you Firefly. I don't really think I need to say much else, and that's a good thing because I'm out of time. I'll talk to you tomorrow night. Ned Michaels is next. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless, and good night from the Music City. Mary Tyler Moore.